turn to Mark chapter 15. Again, welcome to Fullness. If you're new here, uh, we love to worship. Uh, we love to study God's Word together. We love to pray for one another. And we're going to do all those things today. And so as we continue on, let's look at the Word of God together. <laughs> Are you all excited about looking at the Word of God together? Have you ever read a story so much or you skip the book and look at the ending, and it's kind of like the spoiler alert. You know, you know, they do that in the paper all the time now. You, you see some movie or something, and they put spoiler alert. You know, I think they do that just because they know we are all such sinners. We're going to read ahead. We want the spoiler. They, they kind of warn you, but they know you're going to go there. You probably wouldn't even read the article if it didn't have that term spoiler alert on it. Sometimes when we know the ending, it takes away the depth of the journey. Some abridged classics. You may have seen some of these cartoons, these abridged classics. I put together some of my own. Kind of like if you just had to, in a sound bite, say what a novel was about, what a story was about. Here is uh, War and Peace. I, I re actually read this book in high school. Um, and it is long. And if you had to summarize it, everyone's sad and it snows. That's pretty much the whole book. You got a lot of uh, Russian names. You, got, you need a whole glossary to keep up with the whole thing. There's some war and there's some peace. But everyone's sad and it snows. Uh, how about uh, The Grapes of Wrath? Uh, farming stinks. Road trip. Road trip stinks. Now, if you've ever read Grapes of Wrath, I think this is really funny. If you've ever read the book, it's really... Some of y'all need to read more. Uh, Don Quixote, a uh, guy attacks windmills. Also, he's mad. And I don't mean angry. He's, he's mad. Uh, this one you should be familiar with, Moby Dick. Uh, man versus whale, whale wins. It, listen, it'll save you a ton of time. Don't bother reading Moby Dick. Whole chapters on the white of the whale, really. Different colors of white on the whale. There's only white, so anyway. Hannah's liking this. She's actually read these books. Uh, <laughs> crime and Punishment. Uh, murderer feels bad, confesses, uh, goes to jail, feels better. There you go. <laughs> Some of you have never read Dostoevsky. That's all right. Uh, oh, I like this one. The Odyssey. Man refuses to ask for directions. <laughs> it's true. Evil people kill innocent man. It's pretty much how we would summarize the cross. Whenever we talk about the cross, that's really what we think about. Some evil people killed an innocent man. But let me tell you, you cannot summarize, you cannot soundbite the cross. Paul says this, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul was in Corinth for years, years. But he's saying, I'm going to preach this over and over and over again because cross, the gospel, it is the power of God unto salvation. That's why he's not ashamed of it. 
There's an author named Robert Godfrey who writes this. Why does Paul speak that way? He underscores and stresses the cross because it is so surprising, so unlikely, and so contrary to human wisdom that the eternal Son of God should die for sinners. The fact that Christ keeps the law is really not surprising. But that he should die for sinners is amazing, isn't it? Is it possible that as longtime Christians, we have become desensitized as to how amazing this is? Are you amazed? Are you just bored? Have we become to the story of the cross so many times, every time, at least this year, this time of year, where we have Palm Sunday, Easter, Palm Sunday, Easter, cross, resurrection, that we become so, we've heard it so many times that it just kind of washes over us. Emil Brunner, a Swiss theologian, said this, the cross is the sign of the Christian faith, of the Christian church, of the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. He who understands the cross aright understands the Bible. He understands Jesus Christ. What, what Bruner is really trying to say is, if we don't get the cross, we neither understand Jesus nor do we understand the Bible, the whole context of it. The cross is that central to who we are. John Bowering, in a great poem that became a hymn, In the cross of Christ I glory, towering over the wrecks of time. These words remain true, written almost 200 years ago. The cross of Christ endures while the wrecks of time come and go, vanishing into the mist of history. The truth is simply this, people. If Jesus Christ doesn't return soon, someday America will be a mist in time. I mean, we think countries are eternal, but they're not. Christ stands over all of the wrecks of history. Everything that has gone before, everything that will come after, the cross stands over all of it. Crucifixion, and I'm sure many of you have seen The Passion of the Christ, the movie from years ago, and even that, as gory as it was, cannot capture the brutality of the cross. It was specifically designed to be the most excruciating, humiliating form that you could per put a person to death. It was not just like, you know, we, we today, we, we're trying to do everything we can for those states that still have the death penalty to make it as humane as possible. Arguments abound, I understand. But the cross is the opposite of that. It was designed to be painful, drawn out, humiliating in every context. So humiliating that even Roman citizens couldn't die in that way. You had to be a non-Roman citizen to die on a cross. I want to look at the story of the cross again this morning just by reading through Mark's gospel. And I picked Mark's gospel specifically. Mark is... Um, Mark's my kind of guy. He's Reader's Digest version. He gets to the point. It's full of action. 
it, it doesn't contain a lot of superfluous details. Well, even that I would use the word superfluous kind of gives away some of the things about me. But, um, he, I mean, he's just straight to the point. And so I want to look at Mark's gospel, make some comments on it, and then try and summarize some of the truths of the cross before we celebrate the table of the Lord, which is, in essence, remembering the Lord's death until he comes. So let's look at the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, verses 16 through 20. Let's just walk through it together. This, now, please, I, this long introduction that I'm doing to set up is to try and grip us so that we don't look at the story of the cross and say, oh, I know the ending, why go on the journey? Take the journey again. Just allow the Spirit of God to give you eyes to see the truth of the cross. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him, and they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again, again, and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him, and when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. <clears throat> Mark's gospel, again, is straight to the point. And if you'll look, every gospel records different details of the cross. Matthew, Mark, Luke, even John, because they're looking at it from a specific angle. You know, it's like seeing, uh, it's like seeing me even here today. This side of the room is going to have a different picture of what's going on than this side of the room. And as you describe it, you would describe it from your perspective or your viewpoint. I don't know. Is this my best side, by the way? I, I, I don't know. You know, I, I have no idea, and I really don't care that much. But Mark is pretty concise, and he is writing to a, to a Gentile audience, really. He's, he's wanting to let them know that the gospel is, is action-filled. He's, he's got a reason for why he writes the way he does. It says the soldiers led Jesus out. Jesus had uh, been, if you remember, he'd been moved around several times during the night. And at several different locations, he's already been beaten. So he's already taken physical punishment, and we, he's brought back now to Pilate, who's handed him over to the soldiers to prepare him for crucifixion. They dress him in uh, a mock purple robe. Purple represents royalty because one of the accusations against him is he, is, he has been declared a king. He's been crucified really for sedition. And so they put this purple robe on him and this crown of thorns, and then they beat him. They beat him with a staff. They beat him on his head. And as you can imagine, anybody... You know, if you've ever been beaten with a stick, fortunately, I don't think I can claim that. But, I mean, around the head, he's being beaten. And other passages record that he's being uh, hit with a cat of nine tails, uh, uh, leather straps with metal on the end, which is intended to rip out the flesh of the back. They call this the, the half death. They beat a prisoner almost to death but not quite, so that when they go out to the cross, they don't have to wait so long for him to die. Many, many 
prisoners don't even survive this. They die before they ever get to the cross. They insult him, they mock him, they spit on him. Then they put him back in his clothes and he's bloody and he's beaten and they put this hundred pound or so beam on his shoulders to carry away. As he's walking, it says in chapter 15, verse 21, a certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. Carrying the cross down this road from the palace to Golgotha to be crucified, uh, we don't know the exact route. Tradition has uh, a route called the Via Dolorosa, which means the way of sorrows. And along the way, the, there are traditionally stops, the stations of the cross, they're called. They're stops where Jesus either said something or did something. One of these stations where he falls, the fifth station, the, there's a crowd there, and the soldiers call out into the crowd for a man to step out to help carry this beam, the cross. Because Jesus, after the beating and all that's happened, he can no longer move forward. There's a lot uh, written about Simon of Cyrene. Isn't it interesting that Mark says he's the father of Alexander and Rufus? Uh, evidently, from what we understand, um, Paul greets a Rufus in Romans chapter 16, and tradition holds it that Simon and his family become followers of Jesus Christ, and his sons, are, I mean, the reason Mark mentions them is because people know who they are in the church. They get to Golgotha, which means place of the skull outside the city. He's offered a drink, wine mixed with myrrh. This is supposed to deaden the pain. This is supposed to help in somewhat. And it says, and they crucified him. There's so much pain in those four words. So much that gets carried out. Then... They cast lots, dividing up his clothes, which is, by the way, a fulfillment of Psalm 22. Much of this is fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies concerning the death of the Messiah. It was the third hour when they crucified him. By the way, that's about 9 a.m. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him on his right and one on his left. It was tradition to put a placard over the accused telling of his crime. For Jesus, they get a sign and it just says, King of the Jews. Because that's what he's being charged with. He's being crucified between two men, both of whom are accused of stealing. And we know from the other Gospels that one on one side mocks him. And one on the other side receives him. To me, it's just a picture of the world. 
the rejection or the acceptance of the crucified Christ. Verses 29 and following. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days? Come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Earlier, if you remember, he'd been mocked in the temple courts. He'd been mocked by the Roman soldiers. Now he's being insulted by the common people who are walking by in this humiliating state. He's naked on a cross, and they're hurling insults at him, saying, Hey, you said you could rebuild the temple in three days. Let's see it happen now, Bubba. Chief priests, the religious leaders, are mocking him. They hated him. They're jealous of him. They even say, Hey, come down from this cross, and we'll believe in you. Which, by the way, is a lie. If he had come down, they still wouldn't have believed in him. I mean, three days later, he's going to be raised for the dead. They can't ever find his body. People see him risen, and they still don't believe in him. The scene begins with the soldiers mocking him, and it ends with the religious leaders mocking him. To me, it just symbolizes we're all in the same boat. We, from military government workers, common people, religious leaders, thieves, we all stand equal here. At our essence, we're mockers. He was despised and rejected by everyone. Mark goes on and says, at the sixth hour, which is around noon, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Now, why did they think he was calling Elijah? Because Eloi, and it's one of the reasons it's left in the original language. So we get the picture Eloi, Elijah, they're similar enough that on the cross, they just probably misunderstood what he was saying. One man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. So at noon, darkness covers everything. By the way, I, I've read reports that um, this was some sort of eclipse, but my understanding is that it, Passover takes place at a full moon, that this was not some eclipse. This was some sort of supernatural occurrence of darkness that comes over the land that's not explained by simply some normal scientific phenomenon. Three o'clock, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Again, a fulfillment of Psalm 22.1. I, I know it's hard for us to understand, but 
Jesus is eternal. Jesus is God. And in our understanding of the Godhead, we have the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, who for eternity past and eternity future, very effective, Dottie, thank you. <laughs> if you could have done it when the darkness covered the whole earth, that would have been really, that would have been better. I was making a great point here somewhere. For eternity past and eternity future, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has been in continual fellowship with one another. Now listen, I understand that we don't understand all the ramifications of the Trinity. No matter how many times we try and describe it, there is a mystery to the, the Godhead. But for the first time and only time in eternity past, or future, Jesus does not sense fellowship with God. I mean, it's hard for us to get our heads around it. I remember the first time that Kathy and I were apart after we got married. Um, there was a, you know, how it is, you're, you're married, you spend all your time together, you're so in love, you're, you're, as much as you can, but the first time she went out of town for a period of time, and just this, the feeling of loss, it, nothing, nothing compared to what Jesus sensed on the cross, but the, the fact that our sins are being placed on Christ on the cross and he became sin for us causes the holy God to turn his back. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He refuses the drink that would deaden the pain again. Again, this is fulfillment of prophecy. And at the end, he cries out in a loud voice. According to the other Gospels, he says two things here. One is, he says, it is finished. We'll look at this in just a minute. Tetelestai is the Greek word, meaning I've accomplished everything I came to do. And then he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then God dies on a cross. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. The curtain of the temple, um, hard to understand exactly. It, it's said that it was the width of a man's hand. So it was at least four to five inches thick. And it separated the holy place from the holiest of holies. And only the high priest could go through the veil of the temple into the holy of holies, which is where the Ark of the Covenant was, represented the presence of God. And when Jesus died, the temple, the, this curtain, this veil was torn in two. And a centurion, a Roman guard standing near the cross proclaims, surely this man was the Son of God. He proclaimed that, but what I want to look at is what does the cross proclaim to us? We've walked through the story together, but let's this morning, before we come to the table of the Lord, where we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, what does the cross actually proclaim to us? 
First, it's God's love declared. It's God's love declared to each and every one of us. It says in Mark 15, they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Jesus goes to this horrible death on a cross. I mean, we've just walked through it. And again, in its words and in the, my lack of description, we cannot really get our hands around the horror of this thing. It's a nightmare. It's tragic. It's unfair. Jesus, this man, has done nothing that deserves death, much less death like this. Yet, he's come to this point willingly. I mean, <clears throat> you, you, you and I, if we were put in the same situation, we're going to fight tooth and nail to not die. Jesus had resources at his disposal that we, we can't even imagine. So to go there, he had to go willingly. Why? Why would he do this? Because it is a declaration of the love of God that he would send his one and only son to die for us. The cross is the love of God on display for the whole world to see. People, listen to me. There are those of you today sitting here who don't feel loved. Life has just beat you down. Things have happened over your existence that says no one can really love me. And I want to tell you that that is not coming from your own mind. That's not coming from your own flesh. That is a lie born in the pit of hell. I mean, you, when you say, I am not loved, I, I just, I, I don't mean to beat you up more. But I want to tell you that you're just agreeing with the devil. Because that's his job description, to accuse you. And if you want to just walk in the truth of God, say, for God so loved Bart so much, he sent his own son to die on the cross for Bart, or your name. Just put it in there. Receive God's love declared. Receive it for yourself. Listen, i, I got to believe that the power of the gospel is the power to see our lives changed. And one of the ways we can receive our lives, see our lives changed is by walking in the truth that God actually does love us. And I, I know how the devil jumps on us. I did something so bad that God surely can't forgive me. My sin is really bad. You know, Pastor Bart, his sin was probably not quite so bad. My sin, boom. His sin, probably not so bad. Listen, you don't know some of the junk I've done. But you're right. Your sin is probably much worse than mine. But here's the point. Here's the point. In God's sight, it's all sin. There is no gradient of sin. There's not like bad sin, good sin. It's sin. Remember a couple of weeks ago I told you dirt is dirt. It, I mean, it is. But God loved you and me so much that he went to the cross and died. It is a public display in all its horror 
from our minds, but of the beauty of the love of God for me and you. He himself bore our sins, all of them, in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. One of the ways our wounds are healed is by receiving the love of God that's declared for us. You know, we think, uh, we think of declarations of love being all gushy and romantic and, you know, I love you, I love you, I love you more, I love you more, I love you. It, it's embarrassing. I, I, you know, I, I'm, at some point we're going to pray for Jack Williams in the days ahead in this sense. He's got a tough task ahead with the possible impeachment of our governor. I, I mean, I, I don't, I don't want to be in that spot of having to make this vote. But this weekend, they released all those text messages uh, between him and the lady he was having. You know, it was, it was embarrassing on so many different levels. But you know what? Any declaration, it, it, they can be, we think love is this gushy stuff. I was at a wedding yesterday. It was beautiful. The wedding was just, it was gorgeous couple was happy. The groom didn't faint. Everything went good. I mean, they declared their love. It was a, we think de declarations of love are like that. But, you know, in its essence, to really love someone is to die to yourself. Now, now think about this. A wedding, a wedding is a death. Now, you may, wait a minute. Listen, when you come to, when you come to a wedding, you and you're the groom or the bride, you're saying, I'm putting to death the single life, and now I choose to walk in this relationship. I, don't know, I, don't, I no longer get my own way. I no longer get to do it. Now the two will become one. For the two to become one, the one that was has to be put to death so that the two can become one. You have to die to yourself. God's declaration of love for us was, you can't die to yourself, so I'm going to do it for you. I'm going to die for you. And that's how much I love you. I love you so much that I'm going to send my son to die on your behalf. It's God's love declared. Then it's God's love released in us. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, well, my God, why have you forsaken us? For God's love to be released, Jesus has to take the sins of the world upon himself and die for us. The Father turns his back on the Son in order that love for us can be released because all our sin is placed on him there. I, I know you... I, Let's see if I can wrap this into a. We know. We know that the wages of sin is what? Death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The penalty of sin had to be paid for so that the love of God and all that it entails in our life could be fully released. 
So Jesus took all of our sin on himself and paid the price for it so that we could walk in love. In Isaiah 53, 700 years before Jesus ever comes, the prophet Isaiah says, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned on his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All our sins are on him. And he did it to testify to the truth that God is love. And now God's love is being released in us. Here's one of the truths of the cross. You can't walk in the love of God unless your sins are taken care of. And the only way your sins could be taken care of was through the cross. Hebrews puts it like this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, how? By the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, opened for us through the curtain. That's the picture of the temple veil being torn in two. That is his body. I mean, think about this. He's saying his body was torn in two. It became the veil of the temple. His blood did so that God's love could be released in our lives so that we can actually have fellowship with God. He goes on and says, Since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. We get to come into God's presence because of what Christ did on the cross for us. Full assurance, confidence. Unbelievable. We don't have to crawl into God's presence. You know what I mean? We don't have to get it. We get to come confidently into his presence because of what Christ did for us. God's love recognized. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard the cry, saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Mark begins his gospel by saying this. Let me just quote it for you. He says, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the son of God. Mark's gospel is that he wants to, he wants to make it clear that everybody knows that Jesus is the Son of God. And so he has been building and building and building the truth that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And who's the one who gets to tell everyone? A Roman soldier. Standing at the foot of the cross after Jesus died. In Mark, it's not his disciples, it's not his, the Jewish leaders, it's not the common folk. It is not, it's been building to this point that the grace of God, the love of God is released. Now, this guy recognizes it. And he's the one who says, surely this man was the son of God. By the way, he's not speaking generically like we're all sons of God. This man was a son of God. This guy was a good guy. No, he's saying in Mark's gospel, he's making it clear this man was the son of God. 
See, it's one thing for God's love to be declared. That's already happened. It's another thing for God's love to be released. It's already happened. But for those two things to take root in us, we've got to recognize it. We've got to receive it. The equation of the cross, the essence of Scripture, to me is captured in these truths. Sorry, I went backwards. God punishes sin. For the wages of sin is death. It's truth. God hates sin. And he has to punish it. But he loves sinners. That's me and you. Again, we did this last week. But you could turn to the person to your left or your right. I don't care how good they look today. Just say, you're a sinner. You were a sinner. I mean, really, that's the truth. Uh, we are all, for all have sinned. God hates sin but loves sinners. For God so loved the world, all the sinners that we are, that he gave as one and only son. So what did he do? God put our sin on his son and punished it there on the cross. Every one of us sitting in this room today has committed enough sins in the last 24 hours that we deserve hell. Wait a minute, Pastor. You, maybe you did. No, no, no. You did too. I mean, because it only takes one. For a holy God to punish, that's how much he hates sin. So in the last, maybe why have you been sitting here? It's not the point. The point is God took all of our sin and put it on his son and he punished it there. He made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here's the final point of the gospel. God desires for us to recognize and to receive Jesus. See, God's patient with you. He doesn't want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Why is it everybody doesn't come to repentance? Because we don't all recognize and receive the love that God has for us. We don't receive the cross. But you know what? Nonetheless, we as followers of Jesus Christ should be out there showing, declaring the love of Christ, the cross of Christ to the world around us. By the way, side point, Jesus didn't commission you to go to tell the world every nitpick and sin that they're guilty of. Just in love, I just want to share that with you. That, that did, that's not what he commissioned you to do. Listen, I, I dare say that if you go out into the world and share and just talk to someone, they already know. They know their failures. If anything, they know how bad they are. They don't need you to help point that out. It is no spiritual gift to show people their sin. It doesn't take a genius to do that. But it takes a spirit-filled person to go out and in the middle of the mess to declare the love of God to a world around us. I'm going to move on because 
I want to finish this up, but more, we, we in the church are more like Jonah too often. We were like, I don't want to go tell those people about your repentance because they might actually turn and be saved. People, if we got that, there is something screwed up in us. If we have that attitude, rather, let's go declare this love of Christ so that people can recognize it and receive Jesus, turn for their sins and receive the love that he has for them. Because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Two hundred years ago, there was a man in England by the name of William Cooper. It's spelled, it looks like Cowper, but it, most people pronounce it Cooper, C-O-W-P-E-R. He, he, he was a troubled man. He had a lot of struggles. He struggled with depression. Uh, he struggled with who he was and the sin of his past. And he had a friend who took him in and showed him the love of Christ in a very meaningful way. The man's name who took him in was the man, uh, guy by the name of John Newton. Mr. Buddy will sing for us in just a minute, Amazing Grace. But John Newton is the author of the hymn Amazing Grace. He, he, Newton led Cooper to come a follower of Jesus Christ. And he did it by showing him his, Cooper is the love of Christ in his home, by taking him in. You know, see, Newton wasn't just a guy who believed in the grace of God. He showed the grace of God. I mean, most of us, we don't want to take a depressed poet in our house. Good Lord, that sounds, doesn't that sound miserable? You know, just a way to end any conversation is to quote, quote poetry. I mean, <laughs> I have a friend uh, who does that. He'll quote poetry. I said, well, there's another conversation stopper right there. <laughs> Got nowhere to go with that. Take a depressed poet in your house and... Cooper said this, I realized what Christ's blood had accomplished and I realized the effects for me. I realized God was willing to justify me and then and there I trusted Jesus Christ and a great burden was lifted from my soul. To receive, you see it, you hear it, it's declared, but at some point you've got to walk in it yourself. To walk in the cross of Christ, in the cross of Christ I glory, towering over the wrecks of time. It towers over the wreck of my life. It towers over damaged relationship. It towers over every other aspect. And if we'll walk in the love of Christ, it'll change us forever. Cowper went on to write these words. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners, that's all of us, plunged beneath that flood, lose all, all, all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Lord, this morning we pray that we will walk in the truth of the cross of Christ. Lord, on this, this day, this Palm Sunday, where we celebrate your entry into Jerusalem as a king, where days later they're going to kill you, may we understand that 
it's because of God's love for us that the cross happened. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here today who doesn't know Jesus as the one who leads their life, has forgiven their sins, if they're not walking in the love of Christ, that today will be the day when they'll receive you, Lord. They'll receive your love. We'd be willing to say we're dying to the old person. Jesus, make us new. For those of us who are followers of Christ, may we walk in your love and in your life always. And Lord, I pray that right now as we come to this table where we take bread and we take the cup, that we'll understand that what we're doing here is we're, we're receiving the love of God into our lives. A body that was broken so that we who were many can now become one. We who didn't love each other, we love you and we love one another because your love was declared for us. And this cup, it shows our sins are forgiven. May we walk in a full life because we don't have to walk in guilt or in condemnation. We can walk in freedom. There may I though vile as that thief on the cross, see all my sins washed away. Let us receive forgiveness fresh and anew. The truth of what has already been accomplished in us, we receive today. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to encourage you as you come to the table of the Lord today that you don't come and just do this out of some religious ritual, but that instead... You would receive what God desires for you to receive. Maybe you need healing. Maybe you need direction, wisdom. Maybe you need a fresh touch of the Spirit of God so that the love of God just can overwhelm you. Just receive it today. If you're a guest here at Fullness, we invite you to come. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, we invite you to come to the table of the Lord. We do it like this. We're going to have the two center sections come down the center aisle outside sections down the outside aisles we'll have elders and wives and staff there to to greet you and hand you um, uh, the bread and the cup take it back to your seats and then we'll take it together as followers of jesus christ as the body of christ come to the table of the lord as you come just sing with us there is a fountain Ten filled with blood drawn from each.